I'll pray before we come to this uh, word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're sad not to be together physically tonight, uh, but we know that you're still good, you're still in control, and your word is still powerful to do a good work in our lives. Uh, please do that in us tonight. Give us ears to hear uh, and hearts to receive your word with joy so that we might be renewed in our faith tonight. Help us to see how good and just you are in this passage and in the Lord Jesus to whom it points. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the human heart hungers for justice. Uh, when we experience sin done against us, when we see it done against those we love, part of us just isn't satisfied until we feel like wrong has been righted. Now, sometimes this hunger for justice comes out in the little moments of life, say when someone vandalizes your fence or a dog owner doesn't pick up their dog's mess on your nature strip. In those moments, you get annoyed. You think, how does someone just get away with that? That's not right. Whoever did that needs to get over here and clean it up. Our hearts hunger for justice in the little stuff, but they particularly hunger for justice in the bigger and far more devastating incidences of sin and oppression. Uh, maybe you've experienced this or have seen it uh, in the lives of others. The abusive partner who never really was held to account for the trauma that he or she inflicted. The faceless scammer who got away with stealing thousands. The now-deceased pedophile priest who isn't alive to stand trial for his despicable acts. Too often, the world we live in leaves us hungry for justice. And I don't know about you, but I'm not okay with the fact that some people could simply just get away with it. I want to know that my hunger for justice could be satisfied. And I suspect many of you are the same. Well, in our passage tonight, what we just heard read, God is saying to us that if you want to know the satisfaction of true justice... You need to come and know him. For this passage tells us that he is a God who sees evil when it's done, who cares about the victims and who will ultimately hold guilty people to account. So what I'm going to do with 1 Kings chapter 21 is uh, consider it really in two parts. The first part will think about the sickening injustice done against a man called Naboth and in the second part, we'll think through the satisfying justice that comes from God. And then we'll think about what implications this text has for us as followers of Jesus today. So first, let's think about the sickening injustice done against Naboth here. Uh, I love listening to true crime podcasts. I've just finished my second season of a series called Dr. Death, uh, this last season followed the story of a respected oncologist who was diagnosing healthy people with cancer so that he could charge them for expensive chemo treatments that he performed in his clinic at profit to himself. Innocent patients suffered. A greedy doctor got rich. Uh, this series is gripping, but it does leave you with a sense of horror over the sickening amount of injustice that was able to go on for so long. And I don't know about you, but I had a similar feeling of horror when I first came across this passage in 1 Kings, the account of Naboth, the innocent Israelite 
who was unfortunate enough to live next door to one of the palaces of the depraved king of Israel, Ahab. Read with me from verse 1. Sometime later there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. Now, we need to understand that King Ahab rules Israel from Samaria, the capital. But notice how in those couple of verses we're told about a second palace he had in a place called Jezreel. Ahab was not a man who was in short supply of land or possessions. You see, that's what makes his desire to turn Naboth's only real possession into nothing more than a veggie patch so despicable. This whole horror story that we're about to unpack starts over nothing more than a greedy king's desire for a veggie patch. But notice that Naboth won't sell his vineyard. No matter the offer, in verse 3 he replies, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Now it's not because Naboth is simply stubborn or that he's overly sentimental about this vineyard that he doesn't sell it. Naboth refuses to give up his land because he's godly. You see, he appears to be one of the handful of people left in Israel who actually cares about God and living God's way. You see, God had made it very clear in his law to Israel that the land was his gift to them, to Israel's families. And God had put in his law provisions to ensure that no Israelite family would ever be permanently stripped of their land. And so take Leviticus 25 where it says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Naboth's not just an innocent man, he's a godly man. Out of reverence for God, he bravely says no to the most powerful and wicked man in Israel, Ahab. And like many godly people before and after him, he suffers for his godliness. Now, I've tried to capture the sickening injustice done against Naboth in four progressive steps of sin. The first, childish anger. The second, evil scheming. The third, cold-blooded murder. And the fourth and final one, shameless theft. So let's think about the first act of sin done against Naboth, childish anger. Now, this is perhaps the most pathetic image this chapter gives us. A grown man, a king, sulking on his bed because he doesn't get what he wants. Verse 4 tells us plainly that after Naboth refused to sell, Ahab mopes his way home, sullen and angry. And when he gets home, he collapses on his bed and continues his sulking session. Remember, this is about a veggie patch. Ahab essentially responds like my four-year-old daughter does when we say to her, you can't have TV right now. She crosses her arms, pouting face, sulking and angry. That's the kind of picture of Ahab we're given. And at one level, that would be it's so ridiculous that it would be almost comical if it were not for the gross display of wickedness that then flows from this sulking and angry king 
in the uh, verses that follow. Uh, God's word tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Childish anger against Naboth had lodged itself in the heart of this foolish king. He can't let it go. And so like a fool, he lets himself be drawn into the next step of sin that we see in this passage as Jezebel's scheme. And so when Jezebel comes in and sees her husband, she uh, notices that he's sulking around and she wants to know why. And he responds to her in verse 6, because I said to Naboth, the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I won't give you my vineyard. See, notice how Ahab conveniently omits Naboth's reasoning. There's nothing about the Lord, nothing about it being the inheritance of his ancestors. Ahab deliberately makes Naboth look like nothing more than a stubborn pest who refuses a generous offer from a king, no less. And so, as you would expect, This winds Jezebel up, and she's having none of it. She looks at her sorry husband, moping on his bed, and says, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up, cheer up. I'll get the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And so, like a mob boss, she gets busy concocting a plan to take Naboth out. Verse 8 tells us that she writes a letter in Ahab's name to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's village with the following instructions. You see them in verse 9. Proclaim a day of fasting. That is, create a sense of community crisis as though something is wrong. And seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. That is, make sure he's positioned for all to see. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. That is, make him the scapegoat of this falsified moment of crisis. Then take him out and stone him to death. All this over a veggie patch. And so from childish anger flows evil scheming, and from evil scheming, now in step three of the picture, comes cold-blooded murder. And we see it in verse 11, don't we? So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city came to his defense, refused to take part in this act of evil. No, they did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. These cowardly and corrupt leaders followed the instructions to a T and then they took him outside and stoned him to death and they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. This is cold-blooded murder. But the horrifying truth is that it's actually worse than what is actually told to us here. You see, I discovered that in 2 Kings chapter 9, when this incident is again mentioned, that we learn it wasn't just Naboth that they killed, but his sons also. And in a kind of twisted way, that makes sense for Jezebel. You see, it would be hard for Ahab to simply walk into Naboth's property if his sons were still alive and they had claim to it. No, both Naboth and his sons are murdered in cold blood 
all this over a veggie patch. Uh, the fourth and final step in this sickening picture of injustice is the shameless theft of Naboth's property. Uh, God's law was clear that following the loss of a property, the land now belonged and was to be redeemed by the closest relative of Naboth. You sort of see that in Leviticus chapter 25. What's clear from chapters like that is that the king had no right to just come and take that land. But without any hesitation, without any shame, Ahab takes the land as soon as Jezebel gives him word that Naboth's dead. And you could almost imagine uh, Ahab having to step over the bloodied corpse of Naboth in order to claim what he wanted. Look at how quickly his, this theft happens in verse 16 of your Bibles. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. And so this picture gives us childish anger, evil scheming, cold-blooded murder, shameless theft. All this over a veggie patch. What happens to Naboth in this chapter is a sickening picture of injustice. Now, there's a reckoning coming by God, which we know, we heard about it in the reading, but before we get there, it's worth actually pausing to reflect on what this picture is telling us so far. I think the very fact that this story is here, in all its detail, is a reminder to us that God sees injustice and that he actually cares about the victims of it at an individual level. Uh, When this kind of corruption and oppression happens to people, it matters to God. And that's made clear in other passages like Proverbs 22, where we read, Do not exploit the poor, because they are poor. Do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. The Lord doesn't ignore injustice. When his people are oppressed, he cares, and he'll take up their case. Uh, Perhaps you've experienced injustice at a personal level. Maybe you still live with the scars of injustice done to you. I think this passage is reminding us that God knows about your situation too. He cares about what has happened to you. And as we'll see soon, he acts to do something about it. Uh, As I've been uh, observing the Black Lives Matter movement over the past year on the news, I've noticed that many people in the images of the protests are holding signs that say, hashtag say his name. Uh, The goal of this hashtag is to make sure that the names of African Americans killed by police are not forgotten and the circumstances surrounding their deaths are investigated and dealt with justly. Saying someone's name in this context is a way of keeping their case in the spotlight of public accountability. Uh, What's striking about our passage tonight is just how many times Naboth's name is mentioned. By my count, it was around 19 times, which is huge. You might come up with a different figure. I got 19. But I think that tells us something. Uh, It says that although Naboth was so disregarded by those in power, his name and his case was not forgotten by God. God is saying his name all over this chapter. 
God sees, God cares. And what we see in the coming of the Lord Jesus is that God understands injustice at a personal level. When God came to us in the man Jesus Christ, he himself suffered terrible injustice. In fact, like Naboth, Jesus is described in the Gospels as an innocent man who is obedient to God but who is condemned on the testimony of two false witnesses and then shamefully executed for all to see. You see it in Matthew 26. What God shows us in this passage, what he shows us in the gospel, is that he both cares about injustice and that he understands it at a personal level. You see, we don't worship a God who sits outside or stands aloof from the unjust mess of our world and our lives. We worship a God who in Jesus Christ experiences it firsthand. You see, it's only the Christian who can truly say, my God gets what it feels like to be treated like rubbish by those in power. My God gets what it feels like to be mocked and laughed at by the in-group. My God gets what it feels like to suffer death as an innocent. Both Naboth and Jesus show us that God's people, like the rest of the world, are not immune from injustice. But they remind us that in moments of injustice and oppression and sin, we have a God who cares about us. And we have a God who understands and will actually bring the justice that we hunger for. Which leads us to the second point. We have seen the sickening injustice done against Naboth now, here. Now it's time to think about the satisfying justice uh, of the Lord that comes next in this passage. Uh, There is something just so satisfying about that moment when you see justice finally getting done. Sometimes you get a taste of this satisfaction during the evening news as you watch a heinous criminal get led away in handcuffs. Sometimes it comes when a work colleague, who you know is dodgy, finally gets fired. I remember having a taste of this satisfaction a number of years ago when my friend and I were driving up to Queensland uh, on a holiday. And about halfway through New South Wales, we started getting tailgated by a hoon on the highway. After dangerously harassing us for a few minutes, he then overtook us and sped off at high speeds. That moment just really annoyed us and made us angry. But our anger quickly turned to rejoicing when about five k's up the road, we saw the same car pulled over with a police car behind it. Rightly or wrongly, in our jubilation, we wound down the windows and cheered as we drove by. See, justice is satisfying. It gives you that hope that wrongs are finally being righted. It makes you cheer. And in verse 17 of this passage, we read of that satisfying moment of justice in which Ahab is finally held to account for the sickening evil he has done against Naboth. 
See, just when he thinks Jezebel's plan has worked to a T, just when he starts walking through that vineyard, mapping out in his mind how he's going to plan out this awesome veggie patch, that's when God's justice bursts into this story. See, look at verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he's gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says, have you not murdered a man and seized his property? That is, are you not a killer and a thief? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Elijah is coming to Ahab with raw justice. But when he arrives, Ahab kind of appears to look down his nose and scoff at Elijah. So you've found me, my enemy. Look at Elijah's reply. I have found you, he answered. Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, he says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Bashar, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And Jezebel doesn't get off the hook either, does she? Verse 23 gives us that chilling pronouncement that dogs, the feral animal of the ancient world, will devour her by the wall of Jezreel. In fact, verse 24 tells us that God's justice is so sweeping that all of those belonging to the house, the wicked house of Ahab, will suffer a similar judgment. Their bodies will become food for scavenging dogs and birds. And just in case you're wondering whether all this punishment really fits the crime, well, God's, uh, God reminds us in verse 25 just how bad the crime was. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. God is telling us here that Ahab's punishment fits his crime. As Job says of God in chapter 34, surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not prefer justice. God doesn't overreact. God doesn't underreact. God is just. Ahab wasn't only guilty of the sickening display of evil against Naboth. He was guilty of sinning against all of Israel by leading them into destructive idol worship. This passage is telling us that God not only cares about those who have been treated unjustly, but he will bring justice against their oppressors. And that is something that we have to see as profoundly good. A God who turns a blind eye to evil and injustice, whether big or small, would be inconsistent and awful. And if you've experienced injustice at the hands of others, I suspect you particularly know how good the idea of God's justice actually is. A biblical scholar, Chris Wright, speaks about a time in his life when he was in India speaking at a Christian conference. 
After one of his sessions, a man approached him and spoke about how thrilled he was to hear that Wright was preaching on the Old Testament because he said he had become a Christian through reading the Old Testament. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, really, a Christian through reading the Old Testament? But it's true. Listen to how Chris Wright describes this conversation with that man. Quote, He grew up in one of the many backward and oppressed groups in India, part of a community that is systematically exploited and treated with contempt, injustice, and sometimes violence. The effect on his youth was to fill him with a burning desire to rise above that station in order to be able to turn the tables on those who oppressed him and his community. He threw himself into his education and went to college committed to revolutionary ideals and Marxism. His goal was to achieve the qualifications needed to gain some kind of power and thus the means to do something in the name of justice and revenge. He was contacted in his early days at college by some Christian students and given a Bible, which he decided to read out of casual interest, though he had no respect at first for Christians at all. It happened that the first thing he read in the Bible was the story of Naboth, Ahab, and Jezebel in 1 Kings 21. He was astonished to find that it was all about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, and violence against the poor, things that he himself was all too familiar with. But even more amazing was the fact that God took Naboth's side and not only accused Ahab and Jezebel of their wrongdoing, but also took vengeance on them. Here was a God of real justice, a God who identified the real villains and who took real action against them. I never knew such a God existed, he exclaimed. He read on through the rest of the Old Testament history and found his first impression confirmed. This God constantly took the side of the oppressed and took direct action against their enemies. Here was a God he could respect, a God he felt attracted to, even though he didn't know him yet, because such a God would understand his own thirst for justice. You see, those who are hungry for justice find satisfaction in the God of 1 Kings 21. And so as we come to the implications of this text, I I want to speak first to those of you who, like the man in Chris Wright's story, are just longing for justice. But I then want to just finish by speaking briefly to those of you who might be fearing God's justice as you've heard it read in these passages. Because in the final words of this chapter, there is also a ray of mercy that God is wanting you to see and hear. So first, to those of you who are hungry for God's justice, I would encourage you to look at how God responds to Naboth in this passage and his circumstances. See, God's response to Naboth says he knows what has happened in your circumstances if you've suffered injustice. He cares about that, and he will act to bring justice on the sin and wickedness committed against you. And in fact, this is one of the big gospel promises that God gives to you through faith in Jesus. God gave Jesus to our world in order to deal with sin. 
And Jesus does this. He did it first in his coming at the cross as he bore God's justice on the sin committed by those who humbly put their faith in him. But Jesus also promises to bring justice on human sin on the day of his second coming, when every form of evil and injustice will be exposed and brought to account before him. We see this made clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God is just, says the Apostle Paul. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He will give relief to those, to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So hear that promise, justice will be done. And you, if you're in Christ, will know the relief and satisfaction of it on that day. God's total and comprehensive justice on every form of weakness and oppression and oppression gives us hope in a world that so often struggles to see and to care and to adequately deal with injustice. You see, think about it. It says to those of you who have been mistreated or exploited by an employer that their dodgy behavior will have to face God's justice one day. It says to those of you who have been abused, either emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, sexually, that the sinful deeds done against you will be exposed before God's final justice, there will be an accounting. It tells the Christian overseas who is persecuted, beaten, killed for their faith, that their enemies will have to answer for that. It tells us as we watch a current affair in the the news in the evening that no unrepentant pedophile or murderer or online scammer will ever truly get away with it. They too will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Because God is just, you actually have hope in a world of injustice. And like the man in Chris Wright's story, the hope of God's injust- the hope of God's justice allows you to be freed from seeking personal revenge, which may not actually give you that satisfaction you're looking for and often just perpetuates a cycle of retribution. In Romans 12:19 the apostle writes, "Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath." For it is written, "It is mine to avenge, I will repay." To those of you who long for justice, take comfort in the fact that God will deliver it. His response to Naboth shows us this. His promise in Christ confirms it. But finally, I just want to speak to those of you who may be feeling a little bit fearful of God's justice that we've been thinking about here. Those of you who maybe don't resonate so much with the victims of injustice, but more of the perpetrators those of you who feel the guilt of having sinned terribly against another person, does this passage just have a message of justice for you? Well, no, actually. To you and to every sinner, there is actually a glimmer of mercy here. You see this, uh, you see that this passage finishes on two shocking notes. The first shocking note is that Ahab actually responds humbly to God and his condemnation on his, for his sin. 
For the first time in 1 Kings, Ahab seems to feel the fact that he's wronged God and he appeals in some sense for mercy from his judgment. You see that in his actions in verse 27. He tears his clothes and goes about walking meekly in sackcloth and fasting. So that's shock one, but there's actually a greater shock. And the greater shock comes from God who actually willingly extends mercy at some level to Ahab. You see it there in the last two verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I'll bring it on, in, on his house in the days of his son. Now we know that Ahab's justice was not removed, but postponed. Unfortunately, Ahab doesn't keep leaning humbly into God's mercy, but reverts back to his old ways in the following chapter, which we'll hear about next week. But God's mercy to him here signals something to us as the readers, something that is confirmed in much greater detail in the Lord Jesus, that God not only satisfies our hunger for justice, but our hunger for mercy as we feel the horror of our sin. In fact, it is in the cross of Jesus that we see these two big attributes of God coming together. Jesus dies for our sin, justice, but saves the sinner, any sinner, who humbly puts their faith in him, mercy. It's in the cross that gives people who may well feel they have more in common with Ahab the Naboth, hope. People who feel the weight of their sin and desperately want mercy from God. And maybe that's some of you tonight. Maybe you feel guilty before God for the way you've perhaps selfishly used or abused or mistreated someone in your life. Maybe you feel guilty before God for failing to do the good you should have done when someone's well-being was at stake, like those nobles and those elders with Naboth. Or maybe simply you feel the guilt of living your entire life as though your good creator does not matter and is not worthy of your worship. The cross of Jesus is telling you to come and receive in full what the end of this passage gives you a taste of. God's undeserved mercy and love amidst his judgment. The cross tells us that Jesus came to give God's mercy to sinners. Even as Paul says, the worst of sinners. Like Ahab, like Paul was in his former life. So if you haven't yet humbly put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, now is the time. God says you will receive his mercy as you trust Christ. You will receive his love and his eternal life. I'll close with the words of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace and the former slave trader who saw himself as one of the worst of the worst, but who came to receive the mercy of God in Christ. Newton says, may we sit at the foot of the cross And there learn what sin has done, what justice has done, and what love has done. We praise God that he's just. 
but we also praise him that he is loving and merciful. Amen.